You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Quiet on the set. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Welcome, welcome everyone to Movie Night with Sif. I'm your host, Gabby, and guest hosting today, we have Sif's engagement manager, Lucia Julio. Say hi, Lucia. Hi. Today's guest is none other than American comedy star, Connor Ratliff. You may know Connor from his work on hit comedy shows like Broad City, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Search Party. If you're an improv fan and Star Wars enthusiast, then you might know him from the hilarious George Lucas talk show, where he interviews real entertainers as themselves while in character as director George Lucas. Connor is also hot off of a webby win for the final episode of his podcast, Dead Eyes, in which he sets out to solve the very stupid mystery of why Tom Hanks fired him from the show Band of Brothers in the year 2000. The episode sees Connor and Tom Hanks sit down for a chat 23 years and 31 podcast episodes later. Today, this brilliant comedian joins us to talk all about his time in comedy, his life-changing beef with Tom Hanks, and the ins and outs of being, quote-unquote, retired filmmaker George Lucas. Connor, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. What a what a lovely introduction. Uh, that's very kind of you to say all that. <laughs> we all try, true. we try. It's all true. It's all facts from the internet, you know. <laughs> well, I can't. I'm not going to argue with the facts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, first off, we want to say congratulations on your Webby Award win um, for the individual podcast episode for Dead Eyes. Now, before we dive into the podcast, though, mm-hmm. we got to go back to the beginning. You know, and all, like sure, I want to I want to get really like because you're a very private person and we'll talk about this later. But on the Internet, there's not much information about your origins. I did, however, find out that you actually started out wanting to be a dramatic actor. If I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. you went to the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. All right. And then you went out to London to pursue, quote unquote, serious acting. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, yeah. I mean, I even in the world of dramatic acting, I always thought, well, I'll be the funny person in the play, you know. Um, but you know, I did like, uh, I did heavy plays. I did, you know, I was the lead in a production of ordinary people, which is about as heavy a play as you, you know, it's just all about like grief <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, suicidal ideation. It was just like really intense stuff. Um, yeah, but I just, it, to me, it's all just pretending, you know, like you, it, it is sometimes, um, more fun to pretend really serious stuff than it is to, you know, try to make people laugh, you know? Yeah. But I, I I just liked, you know, when I was very young, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And then I started doing plays and I realized like, well, this is kind of scratching the same itch, but I don't have to draw. (laughs) Smart. Um, You know, like (laughs) that, that it's sort of like, oh, I can just pretend to be a character rather than drawing characters and making them up that way. And it's more social, you know, it's, it's, um, you do it with other people. And, uh, and so cartooning sort of fell by the wayside. And, you know, one of the things that the, the podcast talks about a little bit is sort of like you start doing plays as a kid and it's fun and everybody's nice. And then you're like, Oh, I want to study this. And then you do it in school and it's a little more like work. It's still fun, but it's not as much fun as it was when you were doing plays with your friends. And then you try to do it professionally. And now it's like, well, now you're just struggling to get anyone to let you do something. And it's not as much fun. And you, you just keep getting further and further away from the thing that you wanted to do, which is just pretend to be characters, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, I listened to Dead Eyes like as it aired 
live, I guess would be the word. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, cause when Paul Shear recommended it on his podcast, um, I started listening and it was clear that like a lot of actors and, um, people in the industry really connected to the story. Obviously it's about the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also was really like entertaining and poignant and like, the number of people that you actually got to speak with who were involved directly or indirectly with Band of Brothers, it was like really impressive. <laughs> so when you started the show, um, like how many episode ideas did you have when you were like just planning it out? Um, I had about like 20 or 25 ideas for episodes. Oh, wow. Um, because initially... Um, that was one of the things that when we were developing the show, we would get pushback where people would be like, you can only really do this for like three or four episodes. (laughs) And I just had a different idea of it because I sort of felt like as long as the episodes were interesting, you only needed the slightest little thread um, to bring it back to. I basically had like a system, which is I'd write down a list of like, who do I think will talk to me? That would be the first Mm thing. And then is there a way to, connect them either to my career and some sort of like failure or rejection, or do they have a Tom Hanks connection? And if they have a Tom Hanks connection, I don't need anything (laughs) else. I can just talk to them about that. So like, um, with, with any, any guests that like, when we started out, I was like, I'm friends with Bobby Moynihan. We've been on an improv team together and he's in the David S pumpkin sketch. So I'm like, that's an episode because he's one of the dancing skeletons on that Saturday night live sketch. That's all I need (laughs) is like, just tell me about that. And that was like one of the episodes. And, and then I was sort of like anything that's like a weird casting, like bad experience. um, I can make that work. I don't even need a Tom Hanks hook. Um, One of the last in-person auditions I did before the pandemic hit I was auditioning for a very, a, a nice casting director who likes me a lot. I don't think I've ever booked anything through them, but they clearly like to bring me in for stuff. And I did a take of the audition in the room. And then this person was like, that's great. You got it. And then they started to talk to me about this said, Hey, um, uh, has your episode of uh, such and such a show come out yet? And I said, Oh no, I didn't book that. Um, you're thinking of, and I named an actor who's similar to me who had booked the role. And she was like, Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so mortified. And she said, um, well, what else are you working on? I said, well, I'm doing this podcast. I said, this could find its way into an episode. And she was like, Oh no, no. I'm like, I'm like every bad experience or even good experience. If it's interesting, I was like, this could be an episode of, the podcast. So I had like 25 ideas. Some of those ideas were like, um, like talk to like one of the ideas was talk to Tom. That (laughs) was like, that was an idea that almost didn't count as a real idea when you're pitching the podcast because they're like, well, of course you want Mm -hmm. that. But there were people that I wanted to talk to that. I was just, I didn't have a way to get to talk to them. Um, but I had, but I was sort of like, Every time someone came along, like Seth Rogen only came onto the podcast be- initially because Bobby Moynihan had mentioned mm-hmm. him. And then he was listening to the episode and he's like, oh, I want to correct the, he, he thinks we uh, cut his scene for this reason. He goes, that's not why at all. And 
So he was messaging me and I was like, you should come on the podcast. And he's like, well, I did audition for Band of Brothers and didn't get in. I'm like, I didn't even need that much, but now we have a hook. And there was a similar thing where there was a point where we heard from, um, we heard that Elijah Wood liked the podcast. And I immediately was like, we got to get him on. And I didn't know what our, I'm like, I don't know what the idea is, but we'll find it. And so I'm looking through Elijah Wood's like IMDB. I'm like, there's got to be a connection. And then I'm like, oh, he's in this movie Radio Flyer where Tom Hanks plays the adult version of his character. Mm -hmm. That's one of his first, one of Elijah Wood's first movies. And and I'm like, that's not, it's not a like really popular movie that everybody (laughs) knows. So maybe there's not enough for a whole episode. And then we were like, what if we get the actor who played a small Josh Baskin and big. What if we get the actor who played young Forrest Gump? Like now we have three, now it's an episode. And it really is. A lot of it is sort of like the improv um, training helped generate ideas for episodes because you'd sort of just be like, it would be the equivalent of if you were um, doing a show and you said, we just need a suggestion. And someone yelled out Tom Hanks and you'd be like, (laughs) What do I do a scene about, you know? And uh, thankfully that's never happened. I've never done an impression show where someone's <laughs> yelled it out. I'm glad that doesn't uh, happen all the time right. now. Um, but I could do it. I could do it. If, you, if people do come to an improv show and yell out Tom Hanks, I can do <laughs> endless scenes. I, I know everything. Speaking of the man in question, though. Yeah. Can you talk me through the day that you found out that Tom Hanks not only knew about the podcast, but was willing to come on the show? Well, I had a feeling, you know, there were various points where you get the feeling where you're like, he must know by now. And then there was the point where we knew there was awareness, like when, when, um, it was Paul Shear who initially like passed along my email to Colin Hanks. He's like, you want me to, I know him, I'm friendly with him. I can pass this along. And, and what? there was a point where I realized like, okay, there must be, it was, it was getting enough attention in the press that I thought it surely has like, if not crossed his radar, it's at least crossed the radar of like his people, Mm -hmm. you know, that they must know about it by now. And then there were, when I interviewed Colin Hanks for his episode, there was the point where he talked about the family text chain about that. They were like, the kids are listening. Oh God. And 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 I was le- like I was learning about that in real time in terms of how much you know uh, how aware they were of it. So his kids were but fans then, of the pod. Yeah, from like early on, they were like, uh, "You, you got to check this out." And um, the and I think because it's like it's a funny thing to hear about your dad, and it's also like. It's a, it's not too negative. It's not, it's not a thing that's right. going to be like, you're going to, it's not an expose that like, it's playing with the, it's, it's playing with those like narrative tools, but it's also, you know, for people who listen all the way to the end credits of the episode, there's always like, a you know, 60 seconds of me sort of like, there's a little bit of like geeking out. I'd always find a connection to talk about some Tom Hanks thing post credits. And I'm like, this is sort of like my little Tom Hanks fan podcast at the end of each episode. And, but then, you know, I had recorded the conversation with Colin and then I think more than a month went by maybe like a month and a half or something. And I just got an email out of nowhere 
like it was just a Tuesday and I just literally hit refresh on my email and there was this email from Tom Hanks asking, saying that he'd be willing to be on the podcast. And, uh, that was really like surreal. Like I, I, I don't think I'll ever lose the feeling of like staring at that email, not sure if it's real thinking it must be real because I was like, there's too many things about this that, if someone was pranking me, they would cut this part because it's, you know, baffling, you know, like you don't understand what someone's like email, like signature is or what the email address is or any of those things where I'm like, I don't think this would be what any of my comedian, like if I, I was thinking like, I know a lot of comedians. Is there anyone who would do this to me? And I'm like, maybe. I feel like a comedian would maybe take the angle of sending you an angry email rather than being like, oh, I'm going to come on the show. Like, it feels like too obvious of a thing to be a joke that he'd want to come on. Yeah. I think that, well, that's obviously why it didn't happen is like most of my comedian friends are kind and not like <laughs> excessively cruel. Like we don't, I don't have any like uh, friends that have that sort of jackass mentality of like, let's watch you suffer a little. <laughs> That's what's fun. Well, I'm um, switching gears a little bit. Uh, one of your main creative projects over the past decade almost has been the George Lucas talk show um, where you play retired filmmaker George Lucas leading an interview with a panel of guests. So this concept started out as a live improv show at UCB. Um yeah. yeah. And then um, so you have an entire documentary coming out about this. Um, but can you speak on the show's origins and its evolution? Yeah, I, I used to, you know, I, I'm exactly the age where like the first memory I can really remember is like being three years old and seeing the 1978 re-release of Star oh. Wars. So like my first like 10 years, like so much of my time was like, playing with star Wars toys and making up my own, you know, like back then, you know, a movie would come out and then a couple of years would go by. And so I, I was thinking about this recently where like now, if you're, if I was a kid now, I don't know if I would be a star Wars fan because you have to watch a thousand yeah, things yeah. to know what's going on. Whereas when I was a kid, it would be like, Oh, a second one's coming out next year. And yeah. so most of the time I was playing with the action figures and making up my own stories And there was a point in the 90s when George Lucas started doing his special editions where he would go back and tinker with the movies. And the new stuff that was added, like the effects look great, but when he'd add a new scene, uh, like a lot of people, I wasn't wild about it. I was like, oh, I don't know if like this is, I don't know if, and then they announced he's going to make new Star Wars movies. And I'm like, I'm excited. But also based on the new scenes, I don't know if these are going to be great to my liking. (laughs) Wow. And Instead of getting mad about it, which seems to for some reason be a default reaction for a lot of Star Wars fans, if they don't like a Star Wars thing, rather than being grateful for a life of (laughs) Star Wars fun, they decide to act like a war crime has been committed um, and get mad at everyone and get mad at anyone who likes it. And my reaction was that I thought it was very funny that the new scenes were not as good as the <laughs> and when the prequels came out i was like this is kind of funny because you know these are still you know he's so successful and he's changed the way movies are made multiple times that when george lucas fails at something it's still more successful than yeah. anything that i could ever <laughs> dream of accomplishing yeah. his biggest flop is still just like uh you know a goal of mine <laughs> to like could i get anywhere near that and, and I also think, like, he's someone who takes, you know, big risks. I think, like, 
I still think Jar Jar Binks for all the things that are wrong with uh, the movie that uh, the Phantom Menace, that was a movie that he could have easily just made a movie that would have pleased most people. And he's like, no, I want there to be a major comedy character who is just centered to all of this. And he's like silly and it's slapstick and it's going to be a completely digital character. And to me, I always thought that was the equivalent of him booking out five stadiums to do a stand-up tour. It was just like, <laughs> you're just like going to try this. Um, and so I started doing an impression of George Lucas for my friends in the nineties where I would sort of, they would ask me questions about why'd you do this, George? And I'd be like, well, because mm-hmm. I thought it would really, be, you know, just sort of like entertain them with, here's what I'm going to do next. I would make up things that George was going to, ch- I would always make up things that George was going to change about the star Wars movies. And it was just to make my friends laugh. And then there was a point where I wanted to do a show at UCB and I thought, ah, what's a hook that could get people in the door. So they're not, I don't just have to have them come in because, you know, people hadn't heard of me. (laughs) I wasn't going to be able to do like the Connor Ratliff show and have anybody show up. So I'm like, Oh, if I, if I make it the George Lucas talk show, it's really funny to me that, he'd be a bad talk show host. (laughs) So I thought, even if it's bad, that can sort of be the joke of it. And if it's good, it can be just fun because it's Mm -hmm. good. And people will come because they see the George Lucas talk show. They know what, they think they know what that is or it'll be like, which is funny because the show is not as Star Wars-y as people might think because we're always looking for any tangent to get away from Star Wars. And to the extent that we use it, it's to make, um, guests who are not star Wars adjacent to have George be like relating it to like, Oh, well that's like, you know, like when Ira glass was on the show, I was saying to him as George, you and I basically do the same job. And he's like, I was like, what are you talking about? We don't. And I'm like, we do all the same things. You're a movie producer. I'm a movie producer. We both worked in public radio. And he's like, when, when did you I'm like the, the NPR uh, star Wars audio plays from the early 1980s, which were huge wow. public. And so I'm like, we are the same. You and I, <laughs> Um, we're storytellers, you know? And so like, it's always fun to have, you know, Amy Mann came on the show years ago when we were out in LA and I did not know Amy Mann at all at that point, other than just as a fan of her music. And she's like, I've never, I don't know anything about Star Wars. I said, it's fine. It it won't matter. Just come on the show. It'll be fun. And immediately one of the things I started relating to her is that we'd both been nominated for Oscars and lost. <laughs> And it's just like, we're the same, you and I, you know, <laughs> Star Wars didn't win and neither did Save Me from Magnolia. We know what it's like uh, and to be mad at the people who uh, beat us for the Oscar, yeah. you know. And so it really it was it was it's evolved into a different thing over the years because, you know, we did over 300 hours of live streaming. You know, It was a monthly show at UCB, which is a good, reasonable pace. Once a month, I'd spray my hair white. <laughs> we do this show at midnight uh, at, at a comedy theater and then a month would go by. So in, I think a month of doing the live stream, we'd already done more hours of show than we'd done in like six years at the theater. And it's, and it's really warped to the point where now, you know, we have our own sort of lore within the show, but it's also like you could walk in off the street and watch the first one you've ever seen and it would probably make as much sense as it would to someone who's watched them all because it's sort of like 
it's my own weird version of George Lucas, which is like a successful guy who also fails a lot because he's so ambitious that he's not content to just, you know, do the same thing. And also sometimes he does things that are not, that don't play to his strengths. You know, he, he's also made movies that like radio land murders, which is a comedy that he made that almost no one went to go see. It didn't get good reviews, but it's the first like movie that ever used like digital sets to create like a period location. Wow. And so it's like everything we watch now owes some tip of the hat to radio land murders and the technology that he developed that now, if you're watching, you know, Perry Mason and HBO, it's like, yeah, they did this on radio land murders first. That's how they create like, you know, uh, there's, also, like, you almost can't watch any movie that at the end it doesn't say the the sound was done at Skywalker Sound. He's just, like, he touches every aspect of the culture within one degree, you know? Well, you know, taking into note that he's, like, an inspiration to you, as I mentioned, as Lucia mentioned, actually, before you were making it, you made a documentary, actually, about your experience titled I'm George Lucas, a Connor Ratliff story. I, I, I cooperated with the documentary. The, the, there's some very talented filmmakers who made who they actually approached us asking, could they film an episode of the show just to document it professionally? And then we said, well, why don't you, how about you document like the making of the show? And it ended up eating like a year and a half of their lives up to, but I was like, this is a show that sort of like exists at the level it exists at. It doesn't really have the ambition to become, we were never trying to become a TV show or a big thing. And like, that is a very particular subculture it largely is a doc that's sort of about like, what's it like to like sort of throw all your energy into like a small little corner of the New York comedy scene. Well, that was my follow-up is like, how did the idea of the documentary even come about? I think I, partly I was thinking if I, if I had, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, if in the nineties, someone had made a documentary about like the comedy shows that were going on at like Largo in Los Angeles like when when like uh the early days of like Mr. Show and mm-hmm. things like that were all sort of like happening on that scene. I would have been so excited to see that. I'd still love to if that if that footage existed, if there was a documentary about that, I'd still like to see what's happening in this place that I couldn't get to at that time. And I thought it might be nice to document um us doing this show in New York. The documentary is automatically now a time capsule of uh an era that feels like it was a decade ago even though it was three years so if people want to get a glimpse into that time capsule when and where will they be able to see it well that's the question there i know that i we have been helpful to the documentary team as much as we can in terms of but right now they're going through the process of submitting the festivals and and looking to where they want to make their premiere uh, and so I'm just waiting to hear from them when they uh, they tell me, hey, we booked one. We were at we're going to ha- have our world premiere at this festival or that festival. And then hopefully if it plays some festivals, we'll be able to um, take the George Lucas talk show around, uh, which I think is an is a unique kind of um, experience for a documentary to be able to have the thing that it's about kind of travel with it in a and and kind of interact with the documentary in that way. Well, our submission deadline's coming up, so if you want to submit it to the Calgary International Film Festival. I hope they, I, I, I assume that they have. It would be great. It would be great. Sure. Well, you know, the documentary is not your only venture into movies. 
back in March, they announced that you will be playing Mr. Rap in the movie adaptation of Mean Girls, the musical. How did you come into yes. this project and what can the audience expect to see? Um, I, I don't know a lot about it because it's, it's a small part. It has saved my year professionally because it was one of these beautiful situations where they needed me for a certain number of days, but they didn't know which days. So they do a thing where they put you on hold <laughs> and you get paid whether, whether you work or not. So it truly was, I had worked with the filmmakers who were directing the, because this is, there was the movie written by Tina Fey. Mm -hmm. Then they made a musical of it on Broadway. Yes. And now they're making a movie of the of musical the that's musical. on Broadway. Yes. Um, and Mr. Rap is a character that I, I has not been seen in the previous uh, iterations of Mean Girls as a new character. It's a small but fun role. Um, but also they just needed me to be there because, you know, some of the teachers are played by people like John Hamm. They're played by, you know, there are they're bigger name people. And I think I was in some cases as someone that they could have just be in the background so that you if you see these teachers in a scene or two, but then you see like, oh, that teacher's in the back of the cafeteria, then you assume all of these teachers are working mm -hmm. in the school. Um, so I had like one, a couple of days where I was filming where I'm just there. And then a lot of days where I didn't film or I'd go get called to sit in a trailer and they'd never get around to me. And then at the very, very end of filming, they filmed my scene, my big scene. And, and it, I think it went well. Um, it was one of those things where it was the last day of filming. So they're literally like, um, they filmed the, the class uh, point of view where you see all the students and then they turn the camera around. And they're like, it's two in the morning. Are you okay if like half of these people like leave now while we film your angle or we don't see them? I'm like, absolutely. I don't need anybody. 2 a.m. Yikes. <laughs> Do whatever. But I think it's going to be really fun. I don't know when it's going to come out. I don't know when I don't, I, I've heard that it's going to be like streaming on Paramount plus and that's how it'll come out. I kind of hope it gets a theatrical release just because based on what I saw in filming, I think this would be a very fun movie to see in a theater. So even if it does, I, I have this hope that, that I feel like we're, we have years of lost theatrical movies that go straight to streaming that, some of these things should get revival. There are movies that came out either during the pandemic or since that I feel like need to show up in a theater at some point. At some point, someone can do a whole festival where it's just like the movies of 2020, <laughs> you know, that like you never saw like news of the world was a Tom Hanks movie that it came out in theaters pre vaccine or like, um, what was the one where he's in space with the dog? Um, Finch, which is like an Apple TV plus movie that I'm like, this is a big dystopian sci-fi movie. I'd like to see it in a theater. Um, the, but I hope the Mean Girls, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm extremely grateful. It was one of the things that, um, I don't think I got it off of Dead Eyes, but it, it helped. I think it was one of those things where when the, when the filmmakers were like, how about Connor Ratliff? Uh, everybody was like, oh, Dead Eyes. Yes. Where it's sort of like, uh, he can play this this uh, dead-eyed teacher. Um, well, we're so excited to see your work in Mean Girls the Musical. In the meantime, though, you can catch more of Connor at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where he and Griffin Newman are doing 22 nights of their new play, The Baron and the Junk Dealer, from August 2nd to the 24th. If you need something a little closer to home, you can stream the entirety of Dead Eyes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts right now and watch episodes of the George Lucas Talk Show on YouTube.
Thanks so much for joining us, Connor. Are you ready to play some games? Absolutely. I'm ready. Let's do it. It is now time for games. First up is One Star Reviews, the game where we take amateur letterboxed reviews from three separate movies. They're One Star Reviews. They're very bad. And it's your job, Connor Ratliff, to guess what movie the review is talking about. Are you ready? I am ready. If you're ready, Lucia, read out the clues. Okay. Well, the category is George Lucas Films. And the first review is, I enjoy a train wreck as much as the next person. I would have thought a film that went so far as to include voluptuous breasts on a duck would have been more entertaining. All right. This, yeah, this is Howard the Duck. If it's not, then I need to do some research. <laughs> you are uh, correct. It's ding, Howard ding, the ding. Duck. Correct. It's a great, it's a great tell. I, at first, I was like, this could be a lot of movies. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Um, okay, so number two. This was an oil-soaked, burger-munching, gas-guzzling, imperialistic hellhole. Still, it's pretty good for a movie about teenagers driving around saying hello to each other. American Graffiti. Yes! Very good. You, I mean, unsurprisingly, you know your George Lucas yes. films. <laughs> great film, great film. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then the last one. It's like George Lucas asked himself, why must a movie be good? Is it not enough to see a shirtless Anakin Skywalker shrug off his bathrobe? Well, now the the trick is, which of those movies? It's either two or three. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to assume it's Attack of the Clones, episode two, but I could be wrong. The bathroom could be in episode three. Uh, I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with Attack of the Clones, even though I could be wrong. I'm sorry. It was Star episode Wars three? episode three: Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, I just those two movies blur together for me. For most. Uh, so I don't feel too much. I don't feel too much shame about <laughs> not knowing. Uh, I, I also, when I'm pretending to be George Lucas and I get caught out making a mistake like that, I'm always just able to pawn it off on like, how am I supposed to keep track of it? You know? I'm sure George Lucas makes mistakes about George Lucas movies. He must. He's human. It's the right one to get wrong. Um, I yeah. snuck that one in there because I'm like, the trick here will be which one. So yeah. A very good job. Well done. So much fun talking to you today, Connor. Thank you so much for joining us. All the best with all of your upcoming projects and your really exhausting to even think about shows at the Edinburgh Festival, which are, I'm sure, going to be amazing. Thank you so much. It's great talking with you. All right. Okay, that's a wrap. 